Welcome to The Radical Therapist. This is your host, Chris Hoff, and we are now at episode number 93. And thanks for listening. Uh, we took a little break over the summer, It's, uh, it, but we're going to be back in action, or I'm going to be back in action. Just needed a break. Um, I'm sure you all know how that goes, you know, so that's just what happened. So, um so yeah, but but I'm uh, recharged and reengaged and ready to start bringing you some great podcasts coming. So especially starting with today's, it's really great to be back in action with the legend Peggy Sachs. I hope she's okay with me calling her that. But uh, Peggy Sachs from Reauthoring Teaching, a longtime narrative practitioner, teacher community builder, you name it. Um, and Peggy is doing it or has done it. So uh, lots of wisdom to be shared today. And I'm happy to be able to share some of it with you. So uh, before we get there, I, I have one quick announcement. I am doing as well for California Family Institute, the community counseling center that I work for or I, <laughs> I direct. Uh, we are we are now a CEU approved provider, so uh, we're starting our kind of doing. We've always been doing trainings, but we're starting to do trainings that offer CEU. So if you're interested in that on Saturday or Friday, I'm sorry, Friday September 24th at noon, 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. I'm going to be doing an hour-long um, training, CEU training, one CEU on narrative therapy with families uh, where I have video interviews, co-research interviews of three different families that I worked with um, in the past, and they gave me permission to uh, interview them and share it with others. So, And it's about their perspective of what actually works in therapy and their their experience of the narr narrative therapy approach. So uh, I think it's pretty special. So and the and every I love seeing these families every time I show these videos. So uh, if you want to and then I'll give you some ideas I have about um, working with families from a narrative perspective. So if you're interested in doing that and getting one CEU and you, if you don't need CEUs, come do it anyway. It's twenty five dollars. Uh, just come to the California, well, I don't know, how do you find it? <laughs> come find me, uh, email me, or I think you can go to the CFI, California Family Institute Facebook page. I think there's a link up there. Uh, there's probably a link at the Radical Therapist Facebook page, and there's probably a link at the Dr. Chris Hoff Instagram page. So come find that, come join me, Narrative Therapy with Families on September 24th. And if you're interested, I'm doing a on, on a, another thing. I'm doing a mental health strategies in the workplace webinar. If you're interested in stuff like that, you can come find me. And um, that's a free webinar uh, just to kind of talk about what's going on in the workplace uh, in regards to mental and relational health and maybe some strategies uh, about supporting some folks in those contexts. So uh, that's on Friday the 17th. That'll be a little earlier. I think it's 10 a.m. So two things to be aware of. So anyway, uh, without further ado, let's uh, get ready to meet Peggy Sachs, who is the founder and executive director of Reauthoring Teaching, the global learning community of narrative practitioners, teachers, and enthusiasts. 
Um, she continually is working on and crafting, reauthoring teaching uh, to with the uh, intention of building a network uh, array of narrative training, including they offer the Collab Salon, online courses, faculty offerings, higher education workshops, and they do have an in-person event. I know uh, COVID's kind of disrupted a lot of that, but I'm sure it'll get going again uh, called Narrative Camp. Having apprenticed herself to narrative therapy since the early 1990s, Peggy also works in independent practice as a licensed psychologist, consultant, international teacher, and international trainer. Peggy is the author of several articles and the book, Reauthoring Teaching, Creating a Collaboratory. Whether online, on the road, or within her beautiful home state of Vermont, it gives her great joy to bring together favorite people, ideas, and practices to learn, engage, play, and replenish together. And we're going to get a little piece of that today on this podcast. So let's meet Peggy. Hi, Peggy. Welcome to the Radical Therapist Podcast. Thank you so much, Chris, for inviting me to have this conversation with you today. Yeah, I'm, I'm, this is long overdue, and I'm happy uh, we, we were able to make it happen, and um, just happy it's happening. So I guess my first question for you, because I think you're, um, you know, you've been in this practice, uh, narrative practice for quite a long time now, and um, and have done a lot in, you know, in your communities and the communities you move through, and but I guess I want to start by asking you about your journey into this practice, into narrative practice, and if you and wondering if you could share with with us a bit about your journey, how you were introduced to this way of working and its evolution in your life and work. Happy to. Um, I. It's hard to encapsulate, so I'm going to do my best. Sure, sure. I think of that paraphrased Kierkegaard quote that I think I shared with you, life is lived forward yet understood backward. Mm. And I think as I've been thinking about this interview, I realize in many ways, many paths led me to narrative practice and to working with communities. And I, of course, didn't know it at the time, but when I found narrative therapy and narrative practitioners, for me, it was a bit like coming home again, mm -hmm. that there was a familiarity with some of the ways of being with uh, the respectful, curious, curious ways of engaging with people, um, the ways that uh, the, the kind of flattening of the hierarchy, um, the stepping back and thinking together critically about um, you know, what, what are some of the other cultural and historical cont, uh, uh, contributing factors in someone's life, that it was sort of beyond an intra-psychic view. And just to give you a bit of a glimpse in how I got there, mm. I started in the human service world in the mid-1970s, mm. fresh out of University, Simon Fraser University in British Columbia, and I um, had a degree in psychology. I knew virtually nothing, and I was hired to initiate a home-based infant development program in Surrey, British Columbia, and to become part of a province-wide uh, infant development program 
uh, that would approach. And my mentor then was a wonderful woman, uh, Dana Brennelson, who's still a close friend. Mm. And I learned through that work, really, um, I would say, I've always I've said this before, but worth repeating, you know, on at the kitchen table, talking to uh, parents, primarily mothers on the floors, playing with kids and their parents. And I really learned from them first what, what was most important. And I learned um, how to listen and how little I knew. And, um, and I also kind of learned when to ask questions and when, um, and when to speak up. And I also learned then about the parent movement and the movement that was about disability uh, rights. And, um, and it, was a, it was about advocacy. And it was also about helping families find each other and find parent-to-parent support. Mm. I also learned that the, whatever the disability a child birth to three would have or a way that they might be different, that they were a child first and whatever the problem would be, um, was really secondary to learning who the person is and who that relationship with the parents would, might be, and the mother primarily in my experience back then. Hmm. And I felt such a passion for that work and also the people who were drawn to it that I could never have imagined doing anything other than that. And that brought me back to school, my first graduate degree, really studying early childhood special education and working with families and parents. We moved to Vermont in the uh, early 1990s. And I thought, again, I would always do that work. By then I had two children, Mm. married with two children. And um, I worked at a very innovative parent-child center that was also very family-centered. And again, we saw the parents and families as experts. And at the same time, I started to see that it wasn't only developmental challenges that families faced. Uh, There were, contrary to how people think of Vermont, there's a lot of poverty. There was substance abuse, family violence. Um, There were a lot of mental health challenges that people were facing. And as well, my own children were growing older than birth to three. So I was interested in more of a lifespan and older families with older children. So I went back to school and that was in the late eighties. And that's when I got my second graduate degree. And that was in uh, working with um, marriage and family counseling. Mm -hmm. And so I learned then it was right. The timing was so right on to learn about collaborative therapies. Mm -hmm. And I had a wonderful um, pro-SEM supervisor named Dario Lusardi, and he was part of Brattleboro Family Institute. And he taught me about reflecting teamwork. And he was the first person who introduced me to Tom Anderson and his work, and also reflecting team supervision. And I also learned, I was right at the edge of learning about, you know, systemic therapies and um, strategic therapy and different approaches to family therapy. And I was so used to seeing the family first that I didn't understand approaches that put the therapist in more of a expert position. 
And I think I always appreciated um, being able to look like, like to, to join a family, know that I had some things to offer, but that I really use those skills on behalf of them to become, I think what Bill Madsen once called an appreciative ally. Right, and, right. Um, and then my next mentor, I just have to say, was Lynn Hoffman. Mm. And, um, and it's fortuitous that we're talking today, September the 10th, because um, today is Lynn's birthday. Mm. She died a few years ago. She would be 97 today. And I learned a huge amount from Lynn about, again, ways of thinking beyond the intrapsychic, but thinking more in terms of um, what she later in life called communal practices and ways that we engage naturally sustaining webs of support into the family's life. And all of these things were stacking up, I think, for me to see it's we have a way that we can contribute to families' lives. But as a therapist, our, the, ther the family's life does not center around us. We're instrumental in helping them to get into their community, to build their supports around them, in a sense, to build their own, their own sense of community. And it was from there then that I came, I learned about narrative therapy. And I think, you know, I can't even remember because, again, it was a feeling like coming home again, whether that was in the late 80s or early 90s. I mm -hmm. can't remember, but mm -hmm. I do remember feeling like, yes, I love that this is an approach that um, truly aspires to honor families' knowledge, insider knowledge, and where somebody is um, always seen as the person comes first, not the problem. And, um, and that there, there's a real focus on certainly some particular ways of asking questions that, you know, as guides, but that curiosity is really reigns. Um, and that you learn, you come out of the interview, hopefully learning more than what you came up with. It's not a kind of a rhetorical experience. Hmm. Um, and so they then, then I would say both Michael and David, Michael White and David Epson became uh, mentors and friends. Mm. And that's really where the, the journey began for me. That's great. Um, okay. I was first introduced to your work through some readings and I, and I attended a workshop uh, years ago. Um, now not, um, I think probably about 10 years ago at this point. Um, a workshop you did on community and community practices, which uh, which really stood out to me, and uh, you know I've carried since. But I, I guess I'm wondering, and you kind of touched on it in you know speaking of Lynn Hoffman's influence. But how did you become interested in community and and the practices of building community? That, I mean, that's you know I've watched you now build communities. <laughs> um, so I guess you know it's really kind of it seems front and center in your life, and I'm wondering how you became interested in that aspect of the work. That's a good question. It's almost like um, I once heard or David Epstein asked, how did you become interested or how do you use letter writing in your work? And he would say something like, like, how do you ask a child to uh, walk or how does a child learn to walk? Or I would say I'm more surprised that other people don't see community building as being part, a fundamental part of the work. Um, and I think 
one of the things I learned early on while my initial training was psychodynamic. Um, and so I, I learned about transference and countertransference and the reasons why when working in that way, those were constructs that meant keep everyone else out of the room mm -hmm. and really make it a very sacred space where it's really focusing more relationally between the therapist and the client. And I also learned that that is only one way of working. And that was not the way I was drawn to. Um, over the years, I've become really uh, respectful of people who work in that way. I think that um, psychodynamic work has really changed over the years and has become uh, much more relational and in similar ways that I think uh, those of us who are doing more collaborative therapies might say. But so I, so again, so community is always to me, um, just if you're going to be helping or, or supporting someone uh, in healing in some way, uh, being, feeling isolated is really difficult. You can do it, but I always think engaging whoever people's allies are, um, sort of peopling, you know, the room in some way, um, is, um, is a, is a really important aspect of the work. And one of the things that Lynn Hoffman taught me was this idea of communal practices. And she would use the metaphor also of rhizomes mm, and how yeah. they're naturally, you know, um, occurring in ways that we kind of uh, roots like under the ground bubble up and pop up in different places. And we never know quite where they're going to be. But, um, but these, this is not a straight and narrow kind of thing. So um, I think for me also with communities, um, I, I live in Vermont. It's a strange, this paradox, because there's, we have a lot of space here. Um, and so there's a lot more time for, mm, you know, I, I spend a lot of time in my garden. I spend a lot of time walking alone. Um, this is not as, you know, I hardly drive anywhere. Why go anywhere these days during the pandemic too? But um, that's uh, also... If anyone needs help, it's got a tradition of barn raising or mm -hmm. um, the neighbor is right there, our neighbor right across the road who actually grew up in my house, you know, um, will just, you know, ask, say to him, um, hey, we're out of eggs. And he pops over with, with two dozen eggs or, you know, et cetera. So I think, though, maybe the workshop that you went to um, was probably about 10 years ago, mm -hmm. maybe a little less, because I remember that um, 10 years ago, really this month, uh, um, Tropical Storm Irene hit Vermont. And it, it, was, a, it was a really, it, there were certain pockets in the, in the state that got hit really hard. And one of the things that grew was um, how communities came together in disaster in, in, and I then thought about that and had was very inspired by Rebecca Solnit's book on a paradise built in hell uh, where she looked at different communities that had had catastrophic events and came together. Hmm. 
And I use that as a metaphor, thinking about the work I do in the therapy context um, of how, for example, someone who, um, where there was a suicide in the family, her, her husband um, hanged himself or someone else whose son died of an overdose and how their healing for each of them is very involved with getting together with you know, other people who had similar experiences or getting involved with community resources that were there, um, ways of having their experience heard and held and connected with others. Um, so, and then one other thing I'll just say mm -hmm. is, and maybe this will lead into another question. I also discovered in teaching that building community really through web work sometimes in the beginning um, was, uh, was also something really notable to me that the students, when they're not able to uh, meet person to person, like in the corridors between classes, uh, really can learn from each other in different ways um, and how important it is to be able to exchange ideas with each other, whether it be in person or online. Right. And we will get there. Uh, but I, I may want to continue on uh, with this community theme. We live in very divisive times. Um, and you have worked in the past, or you've you worked with the metaphor, or have written about neighborly ways of being. And I'm wondering how that metaphor might open possibilities in these difficult times, or how are you thinking about these times where there's so much divisiveness? Yeah. <laughs> I love that idea of neighborly ways of being. Mm. And there's a, a naivete to it that I both love and know that I have to think beyond. Um, I first started wondering about that metaphor when I gave a workshop in Bordeaux and had called it neighborly ways of being about 10 years ago. And at the break, someone came to me and said, you're using this term, like, you know, I don't know if it's translated correctly, but I think it's neighborly ways of being. Can you just tell me, is that a good thing? Mm. And I was like, yeah, tell me more. And I realized their historical context was more that being a neighbor meant surveillance. Mm. You know, it meant you have, you make good fences between neighbors. You're close with your friends, but your neighbor's, you're suspicious of um, because of some of the history um, in their lives. I see that certainly happening now in the U.S. in ways that's very concerning in Texas and our, you know, right. what's going on right. in our country. Um, the idea, though, for neighborly ways of being with some limits to it, is in some of the similar ways that we think about what does it mean to be a good neighbor? Um, we, um, we extend to the people that, um, that we work with. Um, and I, I would say um, it's, it's really about extending oneself to be helpful, um, listening careful, knowing people are different, um, being a good neighbor. Um, if I could add one thing there, mm -hmm. and this makes me think of uh, something I learned from Michael White. 
And I was fortunate to um, have him involved in my dissertation project, my research project, oh, which nice. was in yeah. 1999, maybe it finished in 2000. And it, uh, this was about finding common ground between human service providers, seekers, and planners. And I had uh, created a participatory um, research project and interviewed about 80 different people about their preferred ways of working and in partic with a particular accent on, um, on the service seekers who were parents of children with disabilities hmm. um, or children who were different in some way. And so we had one night, one evening, where we had a panel that came together and Michael was on that panel to present the research findings. And then maybe about a dozen colleagues were, became like a reflecting team listening. Hmm. And on that panel were two parents who were in the project, two moms, uh, Pam and Prue. And before dinner, Michael, Pam, Prue, and I had dinner together. Be sorry, before the meeting, we had dinner together. And Pam and Prue came to the dinner having being in the middle of a fight with each other. Hmm. And they were quite, um, you know, forthcoming about what they were angry with each other about. And they, they had it out with each other and they, they talked it through. And then we had a, a good dinner, you know, together. And then we had this meeting. So at the meeting, uh, after I did my best being interviewed by a colleague um, and everyone else on the panel and trying, you know, there's Michael, my main mentor, mm -hmm. like showing him my project. And, and, um, and then it came his turn to reflect on the, um, what he heard. And he was paused for a minute. And he said, well, and, he, and I was quite proud of all the findings we were coming up with. And he said, he reflected on the dinner with Pam and Prue. And he said um, they'd had, he recounted the fight. He asked if it was, you know, okay, permission to recount it and said, you, you'd had it really out with each other. And, and then you worked it through. And he said, I, I'm, I'm going to call these, this friendship skills. Hmm. And you demonstrated for us a set of skills based on friendship. And, and, and then he turned to me with looking at what are some of the skills for uh, service providers. And he said, perhaps those are the skills we need to be looking at more, you know, how to actually be engaging with each other. Sometimes even if there's anger, right. hearing people's anger, but working it through. Right. And so I wanted to add that. I thought about it ever since always wanted to write about it, about friendship skills. And I think that I would put together with neighborly ways of being um, that there's rather than thinking about the professionals sort of uh, expertise, which is certainly important. I really like to think more. We teach and live congruently with our values and ethics in different domains, including as neighbors, including as teachers, including as friends and some very similar kinds of beliefs and values and skills that go into each of those roles. Also for me as a mother, as a partner, wife, as a grandmother, 
all of them are really congruent or we, I aspire for congruence between them. Wonderful. Okay. Um, more on community and, and one community you have built um, that is uh, really thriving is reauthoring teaching. And um, I'm wondering if you could share with us how that came about and what its plans are moving forward. Sure. Um, I wrote a book <laughs> called Reauthoring Teaching, Creating a Collaboratory. And that was based on, I felt really compelled to write it to bring together the students' voices from my years of teaching classes or courses in mostly in um, narrative approaches to social work, um, but also a little bit at Middlebury College with undergrad psychology students. And the things that people had to say were so compelling that I put it together in a book. And um, I was very happy that it was right at, like just a couple months before it was published, uh, well, uh, or a few months before it was published, I was able to show the manuscript to Michael, which I was really happy mm. about too. Um, but just as it ended, um, I thought, oh, I guess I should make a website. And, um, and what should we call it? And then it was like, call it reauthoring teaching, creating a collaboratory. And at the time, I didn't think like it was going to go anywhere. And then Michael died. Mm. And when Michael died, uh, it was such a huge event for so many of us. I started working with or getting together with a group of people who were also really impacted by his death and wanting to create a, um, a way of really reviewing his works together. And it grew like that. And then, of course, uh, we brought David Epstein in, too. I don't in any way mean to leave him out here, but it did begin with Michael. And, um, and then it kind of evolved over time. I think it's gone through maybe five iterations. It finally got itself on a stable platform about five years ago, thanks to a woman named Sarah Lenz, whose birthday also happens to be today. And she, she really helped us do that. And since then, um, it's, the dream has become for it to be a place to bring together practitioners, teachers, and narrative enthusiasts for a range of conversations, training. We have continuing ed training as well. And we now are nonprofit as of probably close to five years ago. And so we have a wonderful um, board uh, and, um, and we are, our vision is the sustainability of narrative practice into the future. Wonderful. Um, and, we'll, and I'll have a link for that in the show notes, everybody that's listening. So um, you brought up uh, the teaching aspect of this leads great into my next question. You have a long history in teaching and teaching of narrative practice. And uh, I guess what are your thoughts about teaching this work now across contexts and cultures? And what have you found successful? And what are maybe some of the things you have abandoned over time? Yeah. <laughs> I want to say that uh, humility is is such an important mm. guidepost. Humility and curiosity. Right. Um, I've 
feel like I've learned a lot and I have so much to learn and so much of what I've learned um, and what I'm enthusiastic about is really informed by my own life experience. And the more I step out into other cultures, into realizing how privileged my life is and has been, um, it's just become increasingly more important to find ways to bring in voices from the margins, voices who um, have very different experiences, and to set up ways where um, we can hear each other and where I, I, I think back to what I learned about um, uh, partnership accountability from the people at the Family Center in uh, Lower Hutt, New Zealand, about that as someone with more power, my role is to help amplify the voice of people with less power. And also my role is to be accountable to their experiences and to set things up to really ask. Don't just assume that I understand what that is. So t two little stories come to mind. Great. Go ahead. Do you want to say something no, first? I, I, no, please share the story. Yeah. yeah. One, I remember when I was writing um, my the book, Reauthoring Teaching, and I would walk with a friend who is psychodynamically oriented and I, whose work I, I really respect, psychoanalytically oriented in her work. And she's a very skilled writer. And, um, and I had just written, and I shared with her a chapter I'd just written. And in it, like so many of the chapters, I was so enthusiastic about my teaching and about what I was seeing in the classroom and the, the students' voices and what they were saying and what, like, what we were learning together. And it was one burst of enthusiasm. And, um, and she said very, very thoughtfully, she said, Peggy, what happens to the students for whom this doesn't necessarily fit right away or at all, or who have questions um, and may, may not agree with what you're saying? And my first thought was, and the first thing I think I said was, oh, no, everybody's enthusiastic. It's great stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and she said very kindly, I don't know. I wonder if you're, um, think about that. Are you creating the space for other voices to ask? Um, and I have thought about that was so helpful to me. I brought that in, thankfully, into the book. Um, and I that is probably one of the places when I say humility, I have the blessing and curse of being the enthusiastic sort. And so I need to find ways always to step back and ask. In fact, one of the, even back then with that book, um, one of the chapters was really about, you know, ask, don't assume. Hmm. Um, and so, um, so that is one of the main main thing one of the main stories I wanted to say, and another one is, as I'm proud, but I also know we have such a long way to go that um, reauthoring teaching is gradually changing in its constitution. Where um, I can remember back again, moment of embarrassment, but maybe when I first started giving workshops, and I thought they were great workshops. And someone took me aside and said, these are good workshops, but Peggy, look around. 
almost everybody is white and graying. Hmm. And I was like, oh, my God, I hadn't even noticed that. Mm. And so since then, we've really been trying. And I think, like I say, a long way to go. But we have, um, if, the, if narrative practice is to survive in the future, not only survive, but thrive, there's got to be a diversity of voices across generations. And we have to have ways of being accountable to um, to di- and delving into difference and being accountable to people. Wonderful. Yeah. I, I was going to bring this up later, but maybe I'll bring it up now if it's okay. I, I, you know, you'd said something to me and I hope it's okay to bring this up forward, but mm-hmm. you'd said something to me about your, your idea that narrative does have to start building some bridges or narrative practice has to start building some bridges. Um, you know, and you told us, and I, what brought it up was a story of your friend, your psychoanalytic friend. And I guess I'm wondering, can you say a little bit about more about that, what your thinking is around that? Yeah, I would be happy to. And if you hadn't brought it up, <laughs> I would have um, hopefully brought it up or really regretted that it never came out. <laughs> okay. Because um, this, uh, I think narrative practice gives a very clear um sense of foundation and certain ethics Mm -hmm. and certain um, ideas to be thinking beyond the intrapsychic and to be um, certain ways of guiding ourselves. And I truly believe it's not only possible, but at times really important from that base to be curious about all the other possibilities that are emerging. A great example I know that I've really enjoyed listening to your interview with Lynn Rosen. Mm. And Lynn Rosen is on our board, and she is about to start another set of what we call a faculty consultation group um, on um, what she calls embodying conversations. And we um, and she tro- she bridges narrative practice with EMDR, with somatic therapies, with various other ways of uh, working in an embodied way. Hmm. Um, And she really has brought in much more of of ways of working that have not been traditionally part of, um, of narrative practice. And we posted her group, oh, six weeks ago, maybe, and it immediately sold out. And now we're just today, um, I was just posting a second group. um, And that will sell out too. And that's where the energy is. People are very interested in in somatic work. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've often thought of um, that there are different ways of practicing narrative. Um, My Australian friends, uh, who come more from the Michael White tradition, uh, I think of almost like when I've thought about learning Pilates, mm. that they're like classical, you know, they're, they're very, their way, there's an elegance to the way that they move with their questions and curiosity. Mm. I think of David Epstein and what he's now calling um, uh, contemporary narrative practice or narrative therapy. And that's much more... Uh, 
he's really wanting to be inventive and curious in some other new ways. It's, it's like being on an adventure together. I think of people who um, would be almost like uh, in Pilates metaphor, who might be building Pilates with yoga. You know, there are people who are more interested in the embodied work. And to me, that's what's really exciting is that we can have different ways of working, um, but at the same time, stay, stay dear, you know, hold precious the values and the ethics that we believe in. Right. Thank you for that. Yeah. Okay. Um, you all, and this is a kind of a personal interest question for me as well, since I, I, I do organizational and systems work, but you also have a background in organizations and systems work. And the pandemic has shined a spotlight on mental health and relational challenges people are experiencing in workplaces. And it, it seems, you know, folks are pretty good at critiquing causality, you know, capitalism, neoliberalism, et cetera, but, but find it more challenging and offering support. And that's my opinion alert. But do you, do you have some thoughts about how we might take our practice, narrative practice into these contexts in a consultative way? And what has been your experience as a consultant? Yeah, that's such a good question. You know, that question is what brought me back to graduate school in the late mm. 90s to get a PhD in organizational systems. And at that time, I had been working in the therapy room and with narrative practice and seeing such positive change happening that I thought, what happens if we bring this to, I want to know what's in the literature and what other people are doing um, with applying narrative therapy to working with organizations. And at the time, I was also doing a fair amount of facilitating community groups um, in Vermont, mostly. And I, this was in the late 90s, and appreciative inquiry had already just been just popping out, right. you know, it was... It, its literature was everywhere. And, um, but there was hardly anything about narrative approaches to organizations. And I think that one of the, can't do it over again, but one of the challenges is that the, this is a personal opinion, <laughs> that the early narrative work was so suspicious of research that we lost time mm. and so suspicious of uh, institutions of higher education that there wasn't the research going in that um, would have been so exciting to have found then. Mm. So I did my best, but I would say, and my hope would be that anyone who's going back to school now, what, 20 years plus later, would find a very, you know, there have been some some interesting articles and works done applying narrative therapy or narrative practice to working with organizations. Um, I think that the people in um, uh, France, uh, you know, that have started more from a coaching background have really, uh, my friend Pierre um, and his group have really done some interesting work with organizations where they draw from a narrative um, orientation. Uh, but I, I thought when I left, got a PhD in organizational development, that I would 
you know, work more with organizations. And I gravitated back to the therapy room. And I think if I had, I might not have uh, started reauthoring teaching. Mm. Um, but at the time, it wasn't as friendly as it is now. Um, but back to your question, I don't know if that answers your question. Now is the time uh, to be doing that work. I don't know what the precedent is, but I would say, Chris, go for it. Make yeah. it happen because they need your help. Well, I'm trying, and it's and it's complex. And I like, I like that um, – Suspicion, yeah, I'm familiar with that, right? And uh, that it had that it, it's operated, and I think in uh, in, in organizations as well, not ju not just academia, but in organizations, and there has been some suspicion of that. But I think there's a lot our practices have to offer in support of people in in these environments. So, yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, if I could just yeah. add, yeah, um, I think. Narrative therapy got the mm, reputation, at least in the U.S., not everywhere, hmm. but as being having a certain, I, I don't know what to call it, arrogance to it, I'm just going to say. Sure, sure, sure. Um, and, and a kind of sanctimony. And I don't feel that way at all. I don't think it's a sanctimonious, we're better than them kind of, you know, orientation. But, um, but I do think we have a lot to learn by, by studying also the other approaches like appreciative inquiry, right. Um, right. and learning how other people have been working with organizations. And then from that point of view, adding what we have to offer. So it doesn't feel like a kind of siloed approach that, um, but more, Again, building bridges there as well. I love that. Yeah, yeah, I do. Thank you. Okay, a couple more questions. Um, mm -hmm. I know you've talked about this a little bit throughout our conversation, but um, what do you see emerge? I mean, you're kind of at the forefront of it. You're, you see, a, you meet with a lot of different people. What do you, what do you see emerging in narrative practice, and what sort of futures are you excited about? Yeah, well, thank you for <laughs> that uh, saying. I that I'm sort of. I have a view, I do have a kind of a, I think of it like I learned this, this, this idea from Maggie Carey where she would um, get on top of a chair to mm -hmm. see a higher altitude with a family. And I have a higher altitude view perhaps of, of narrative practice because I love being in touch with different people in the world, seeing what they're doing and co-creating some events around that. One of the things that are, are, we've already touched, but it's worth uh, repeating that in order for narrative practice to sustain in the future, there are, um, we have to be kind of co-mentoring each other with um, the younger generation or people who are coming into it. Um, that those of us who've been in it a long time, I want to be able to offer my skills to help get other people moving with their work, but also to learn from them because the world has changed and is changing. Um, I, as a baby boomer, I am um, very contemplative lately about, think about that old idea 
when you go camping and you're supposed to leave the campsite as you left it. Right. And we are not doing that. And I feel, um, you know, a, a deep sadness for what we're passing on and want to do all that I and we can to help with that. Um, as we as we turn the corner into the new decade and the pandemic came, I stepped back with some others and we developed what we're calling, well, first we called 12 hot topics for the new decade. Mm. And that then quickly became 11 hot topics and one burning topic Mm. because the earth's environmental crisis and opportunity was the burning topic. Um, And when you go to the reauthoring teaching website, you can see those 12 hot topics with the idea that we want whatever we do in this decade to be um, sort of offering opportunities for those to grow. Things like building on Michael White's legacy, um, building on David Epstein's uh, focus on improvisation and innovations and collaborations. all these sort of narrative practices around the world and what the intercultural considerations are, very specific narrative skill development, making sure that we're not just talking theoretically, but mm-hmm. this, is a, this is a community of practitioners. What does this actually look like? Right. And making sure we're applying it to particular areas and that we're, like we said, integrating with a variety of approaches. And then I think an order to grow, to continue to grow, um, we have to continue to strengthen um, a collaborative narrative network around, you know, that we can't do it alone. We need, there are these small centers throughout the world for for us to kind of link together. And then of course, a focus on teaching and supervision. We have to be sure to get, um, to get, if, if narrative practice is going to sustain into the future, It needs to be, we need to get it into institutions of higher education. And that's why we've also started a YouTube channel and um, and really trying to make high quality available teaching materials. And then the one other one or including, you know, in addition to what I said about across narrative generations is um, refreshing our spirit in the work Mm. and how we can continue to find ways to do that. I have sponsored for a number of years, something we called narrative camp here in, in Vermont. And then the pandemic came and, um, and we haven't been able to do that um, as we had. And we have to find some other ways to come together to support each other, um, especially during, during the pandemic. Yeah. And as soon as you can start meeting again, I want to come to narrative camp. So Uh Yeah, we, I think you were going. We I was, were once yeah, going yeah, to come. yeah. Yes, something yeah. got in the way, but yep. Uh, well, one of these days, hopefully soon. Uh, last question for you, Peggy, and thank you so much. But um, this is a question I like to ask everybody these days, and that's just what books, films, ideas, etc. What's what's capturing your attention these days? Yeah, that's such a good question. Um, you know, I'll say that my life has become much more multimedia. So um, I'm glad, you know, I, I listen to a lot of podcasts Mm -hmm. now. Um, 
I listen to, uh, I watch, uh, um, I create these YouTube videos. Um, I find that some of the materials that I'm really looking at now come to me through the people I work with. I, I still have a full-time practice as a therapist. Um, and we, um, one of the things I feel very privileged about is because I live rurally, I have a backyard office and we meet under the shade tree in the, uh, in the summer, unless it's raining and then inside on the porch um, with the windows open or, um, or with the heat pump, or we meet around a, um, a fire pit uh, in the winter, all bundled up in blankets and things. Hmm. So this has a very, a different kind of, mm, I think, effect on, on the work we do with each other. And I say that because it may be coincidental, but I find a lot of people who come to consult with me bring their books with them, bring their poetry, bring their um, various um, what is really inspiring them. Um, and we look at it together. And so um, one of the ones that, and I'm finding more and more poetry like that. And uh, one book that someone just brought me and I, I am so loving it. And it's by a man named Stanley um, Kunitz, Kunitz, K-U-N-I-T-Z. Um, it's called The Wild Brand. And I wish you could see him because <laughs> he died at 101. Hmm. And it was written, um, it's, he reflects on a century in the garden. And he... Um, it tells a story near the beginning where he had, I don't know if he had a stroke or, um, or something. He had some kind of um, experience um, where his first response was clear my calendar. Um, uh, all I want to do is write poems and be in the garden. Hmm. And, um, and that the garden was a, cons a source of solace and renewal. And so he wrote these poems and they were published. And um, the last stanza in the book, which has a picture of him walking, oh, you know, with his cane to his, uh, it's his gardens in Provincetown. And he says, I can scarcely wait till tomorrow when a new life begins for me as it does each day, as it does each day. Mm. And I... I find such inspiration in that. I, I, I have to say we're all challenged and I'm so challenged these days to stay hopeful about the future and reading the works of older people like that help. And also knowing that when you can't immediately find hope, you can always find gratitude for what you have. Mm. And I certainly feel very grateful for all that I have in my life and all I've been able to experience. That's wonderful. Thank you. Um, that's a great place to end. Thank you, Peggy. Uh, I would just, uh, thanks for coming on the show uh, and, you know, keep up all the work that you're doing. And, um, and like I said, you know, you, you've been an inspiration for me for a while now. Uh, since I saw your first in your first workshop, so keep doing what you're doing. Oh, thank you, Chris. And I, I want to say right back at you that uh, 
it's such a fun thing that we get to meet each other, get to know each other a bit more in this way, and that you have now uh, agreed to come on our collab salon <laughs> yes. um, in the beginning of 2022. Yes. And uh, do you want to just say a little thing about what that's going to be for you? Yeah, just so everybody knows, uh, I've been invited by Peggy to to be part of Reauthority Teachings Collaborative Salon, Collab Salons. And Justine Diarigo and myself will be doing our little work on composition and curiosity in narrative practice and some of the kind of just go over some of the writings we did. And then also I'm excited to talk, you talked about actual practice and it's our intention to show some new ideas around scenarios or f future scenarios, which was born out of street Italian street theater many, many, many years ago. So, uh, and as, and as a way, since it's an actor's craft and not a director's craft as a way, uh, one way of looking at some of the work we're doing and how we might support people as they move into liminal space. So, uh, and hope to have actual video of that work too, of working with, um, real work, um, doing that. So yeah, looking forward to that. Wonderful. Well, yep. we're, we're so happy you can come. Yep. Uh, thanks again, Peggy, and take care. Take care to you. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. That's our show. And as always, thanks for listening. Please share with all your people uh, that you think would find this worthwhile and helpful. Uh, we would appreciate that. And always come find us on all the social medias. Uh, the Radical Therapist on Instagram. Uh, the Radical Therapist has a Facebook page. And there is a Twitter. But, yeah, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> whatever about Twitter. Uh, still trying to figure Twitter out. Anyway. Um, yeah. So, and you can always reach out to me. If you have any questions, comments, thoughts, uh, theradicaltherapist at gmail.com would be happy to get your uh, messages and thoughts and feedback and all that kind of stuff. Um, and yeah, just let me know if, you know, there's somebody that you think I should be talking to. I always appreciate that too. And actually it followed through. I got somebody coming up next who several people have emailed me about. So that'll stay a secret for now, but pay, uh, it'll be coming soon. Anyway, uh, as always, I'm Dr. Chris Hoff. This has been the Radical Therapist Podcast. Thanks for listening.